As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Copa with Felipe Cardenas. I'm your host, and today I'm joined by one of my colleagues at The Athletic UK. He covers Manchester United. You can hear him on The Athletic's Talk of the Devils podcast. He's a best-selling author and a turtleneck connoisseur, Carl Anka. Welcome to Copa. How are you, my friend? Thank you for having me. I feel underdressed. I'm not wearing a turtleneck today. I'm disappointed. Um, I am disappointed, but it's okay. Very often I have these moments where I will dress up in a turtleneck and then realize I have to do some sort of television role. And, and <laughs> you know, it, I, if you wear a turtleneck or not, you understand that very often you have to put your microphone through your jumper and clip it yep. on your collar, uh, which is very difficult to do in a turtleneck. So I've not been wearing as many recently because the World Cup and other things meant I had to wear it's things. It's part of your collars. brand, though. It's part of your I brand. Know. Don't I know. know. You got to stick to it. What a thing. Uh, well, listen, Carl, Carl, obviously Manchester United uh, reporter, and that's what we're going to do. This is a full on Manchester United um, episode for Copa. We're going to get into the evolution of the club under Ten Hag. Uh, we're going to get to the books that he has written, award winning books that he's co-written with Marcus Rashford. We'll do that at the bottom of the show. Uh, but first, as I said, we're going all in on Manchester United's rebuild under the Dutch manager. Uh, you wrote a story this week titled How Manchester United Have Changed Under Ten Hag and What's Left to Do, which I think is a very important part of that story. What's left to do? The story is whether if you're a Manchester United fan and supporter, this is a must read because it's tactical, it's historical. Uh, There's some great images and audio clips that tell the story of Manchester United's evolution uh, that we're witnessing firsthand right now. So uh, I'm going to ask you a very basic question, Carl. Why did you write the story now? Uh, the short answer is it's the halfway point of Manchester United's Premier League season. And uh, as someone based in North America, I'm sure you're aware of the, the, the sporting adage, trust the process sure. from, the, from Philly, basketball and whatnot. <laughs> and that's that's been very much co-opted by Premier League viewers. Arsenal have been saying it for a while. And when Mikel Arteta, trust the process. Wow. Um, and quite a few Manchester United fans this season have heard Eric Ten Hag say this is a process it's it's a it's a work in progress, and he's often talked about that. He's not outright. He said, "Trust the process." Phraseology, <laughs> but he is looking to get buy-in sure. in the same way. 
And I thought halfway through the season would be a great time to go, this is what's going on. Especially at a club like Manchester United, which have had more than one full storm. It's incredible that, uh, I mean, such a massive club, we know that, but also just a, glo- a global brand uh, in, in all aspects of sport. And, you know, it's it's interesting because the way you described the team uh, last season, and this is a quote, this is what you wrote, quote, a dysfunctional machine of jarring parts, which for somebody that grew up in the 90s, uh, you know, Manchester United was the team that like I... Hate is too strong a word, but like there was this res- deep respect because they were, fi- you know, they were intimidating. They were fearless. They had the best manager in the world and Sir Alex Ferguson at the time. They won in Europe. They won uh, domestically. The players that they had. And now it's just like this rudderless club for so long until Ten Hag comes in. You mentioned a work in progress and process. How does a supporter of a club a generational supporter of a club like Manchester United accept that I need to wait and see how this pans out. I need to be part of the process. Is that, are they, are are fans in Manchester accepting that at the time? I think so. I think it's been difficult because there have been previous managers that have come on and said, this is going to take time. And the the manner of delivery wasn't taken well. So Louis van Gaal, you may have seen during the World Cup, can be quite abrasive. Uh, very can blunt. Quite, can be very blunt. Can be, yeah. uh, you know, he's, he's a bit unorthodox. Uh, I've once described him as tactically perverse. He, he said <laughs> Manchester United aren't what they are yeah. uh, and things need to change. And he was very, he was eventually rejected by the fan base uh, and people around the club because the football he played was just dull. Yeah. It was very esoteric. Jose Mourinho comes in uh, and yep, he wins some silverware in 2017, but he too eventually was talking about football heritage and, and this concept that Manchester United aren't what they are sure. or, or whatnot. And then he too eventually leaves on the cloud and whatnot. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer comes in and he is hailed as sort of you know, the great apprentice of Alex Ferguson and, and the person to to do, you know, not in a manner not too dissimilar from Pep Guardiola, be the mm-hmm. one to, to restore the lineage. And Solskjaer and people around Solskjaer who played with him in Manchester United often said, you know, maybe two to three years time, United can be title contenders. And then two to three years time happened and United seemed to have gone backwards from the title challenge. And that went away. Whereas Ten Hag came in and I think it's really important to to note how bad Manchester United were this time last year, how bad they were this at the end of last season. They were just completely devoid of confidence, loads of infighting on the fan base, with an interim manager that no one particularly liked, who seemed to be saying um, very candid things in press conferences every single week. Uh, and all of a sudden, Ted Hart comes in, and he is a manager who was known in Europe for being very, very smart, was known for being a very good Ajax manager. But at the same time, when he was announced, there was a lot of conversation about, well, Frank De Boer was highly <laughs> regarded when he yeah. left Ajax, and he had a terrible time at Crystal Palace and you know, didn't cover himself in glory into Milan and his Atlanta period. I covered him here in Atlanta. Yeah, I covered him here. And he had the same issues. He was so yeah. blunt with what he would say that it, it rubbed fans, it rubbed people around the league the wrong way, like he's not a good fit. Mm-hmm. Is it the Dutch attitude? Is it uh, is it arrogance from, from his pe- previous success? It's interesting. I do, before you go on, you mentioned Van Gaal and the, the things that he was saying, Ralph Ragnick as well. Does the truth hurt, though? I mean, was what they were saying off base or were they correct and just perhaps not using it the, the, the right filter? I think 
the there has been a, a history of, of interviews, some public, some very public, where people around Manchester United have a fall into a very interesting place where what they're saying is right, but how they're saying it or the manner in which they're saying it might not be included as the right thing. Sure. So if you think to Cristiano Ronaldo's interview with Piers Morgan, mm-hmm. a lot of the things he was saying were correct. Yeah. Manchester United's training facilities are no longer the best. Uh, Manchester United have fallen behind other leading clubs in three or four things. But the manner of doing it just before things break up for the World Cup uh, and the other things Ronaldo said as well mean that interview can be classed as not the right thing, sure. if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and I think one big thing with Ten Hag was he came in and went, I have high standards, I have a demand, these are my rules. If you break these rules, you'll be held accountable. Hmm. And this is going to take a while, but if you believe in me, this will work. And I think one thing that's also quite interesting with Manchester United, and as you've, you said, you know, during the 90s, unprecedented amounts of success sure. on Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, as Sir Alex Ferguson is a very unique football manager in yeah. that not only was he very, very successful, but he had a fantastic poker face. <laughs> Sir Alex Ferguson. So one of the, you know, one of the things that happens quite often where I'm talking to people who were born in 2000s, who are on the age of 25, he's like, oh, Sir Alex Ferguson has no tactics. He just spent a lot of money. Get out of here. And yeah. it's like, that is that is not correct. But <laughs> I can understand why you would think that because sure. Sir Alex Ferguson had zero interest in explaining himself. Right. Because if he explained him, you know, if you look at his documentaries and his interviews since he's retired, Sir Alex Ferguson's made it quite apparent of when you're in the middle of that sort of trench warfare fighting for civilware, Explaining yourself too much is to your own detriment. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. I think sometimes I think when managers keep things closer to the chest and to the vest and they don't describe their, they don't want to impress you with tactical explanations. It makes them more intriguing. It makes the team, if they're successful, then you're like, what is, what is it yes. that is the secret sauce right yes. now? So Sir Alex Ferguson was very good at looking not human and like a tactical wizard totally, or warlock totally. or whatever, which is great when he's there. But when he left, it left such a talent vacuum and there was no real handover notes or sheets to anyone else. So <laughs> the, the secret source to Manchester United disappeared. And then you have a series of managers going, there's a huge void here that yeah. I can't believe exists. Replacing one of the greatest of all time is hard. Replacing one of the greatest of all time when the greatest of all time has no interest in explaining why they were great is even more difficult. Right. So you create this weird situation where Manchester United fans are very used to success and they can almost as a default, you know, growing up in the nineties, I, I wouldn't, sometimes I wouldn't watch a game. I just go, well, we're going to win this weekend. And I'll, I'll see that 10, I'll see it in the highlight show. Incredible. And then United started losing. And my interesting tactics started with going, my football team isn't so good anymore. Maybe I need to learn about these tactics things. Yeah. So Ten Hag coming in and saying, this is going to take some more time. I'm also going to explain to you some of my methodology as I do it. I think it's been, Quite interesting for Manchester United. Refreshing? Would you say it's refreshing? Yes, Sometimes and too no. much information is is doesn't you know doesn't really improve things. Yes, and Ten Hag, because of his mastery of English, sometimes is a slightly circuitous way of talking. Yeah, uh, yeah, he has that thing of you know, uh, Alfred Hitchcock also described it as the, the frozen chicken problem, where he says something to you and go home, you take the chicken out the freezer and go, wait, that didn't make sense. <laughs> uh, and Ten Hag is good at that. There have yeah. been two or three times where I've asked Ten Hag a question about, oh, how did you improve a player? And I say, oh, well, we did this and this and this and this. And I go home and I go, what? <laughs> Which, again, shows a, a degree of mastery as well. And I think Ten Hag is 
he's got buy-in from players, from fans, uh, in a way that I haven't seen previous managers have. I think there's been times where Manchester United have had success and they've mm-hmm. gone, this is it, we're great because we've got ex-manager. But I think one of the difficult bits for a lot of people, uh, for a lot of football fans, not just Manchester United, but all fan bases, is when you reach a situation where you go, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. But I trust it will work out because X has a plan. Uh, and I think you're seeing this a lot more. United fans are going, hmm, bit weird to get in uh, Valt Veghorst on a short-term loan, but I trust Ten Hag to make sense of this for me. That is, uh, yeah, that is a that big is the change. Threshold. Sure. You know, the story that you wrote, again, just to go back to it, uh, how Manchester United have changed under Ten Hag and what's left to do. It's so good because it, it, it the, the basis begins with what you just described, like where they were before, how they ended the last few seasons. And then we like a close look at what made Ten Hag's Ajax side so so interesting and so uh, so well built uh, the way they play everything from the three one six shape that you talk about that that's how Ajax would play that's how they build possession the slow slow fast form of possession the overloads the third man runs the essentially positional play described in a way that makes sense and that can make sense for the current crop of players at Manchester United uh, I think when I see these tactics and I think of players at this level or at any level, what's important is c- can can the coach communicate effectively about what he's doing? And and, and before we jumped on here, Carl, I talked to a, a source in, in the Netherlands who's very close to, to Ajax and everything about the philosophy there. And I asked him, like, how would you describe Ten Hag? And he wrote, he told me, this is via WhatsApp, uh, he knows what he wants, clear philosophy, vision. This way, his game plan is clear for every player on each position. Simple. Have you seen that? Yeah, uh, you can also see it in, in his press conferences. So after Manchester United beat Arsenal uh, early in the season, I, I picked up that one of Ten Hag's uh, replies, most common refrains when you ask him a question, is is he'll say the word clear. Hmm. Um, and my partner is Dutch and supports Ajax. And I sort of went, why does Ten Hag say clear? Uh, she, <laughs> she informed me that what he's he's translating the Dutch word doodelig, which is um, obviously... So even in his phraseology, Ten Hag, you ask him a question and he'll go, oh, well, obviously, but he says it as clear. We do this, clear, boom, 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 boom. It's and I think... Fascinating. Ten Hag, Ten Hag's virtues as a manager is that he has a very, yeah, a very clear idea of positional play. It is from that sort of Cruyffian footballing tree yep. that uh, is shared by managers like Pep Guardiola, Thomas Tuchel, um, and others, I think what's made him particularly interesting at Ajax was he wasn't entirely beholden to those ideas, Absolutely. the Dutch ideas of Dutch total football. I mean, where was he before? Remember, he was at Bayern yeah. Munich under Pep. Uh, he, he was. Know, he was probably indeed. mixing different schools there and teachings. Uh, and he came to, you know, he was a manager at Utrecht and Goheg Eagles in, in the lower leagues of, of Dutch football. Um, there's a fantastic... A writer called Nathan Clark. He mostly covers Tottenham Hotspur. You can find him on Twitter and he's got a fantastic um, podcast and, and does loads of Tottenham Hotspur-based analysis. Um, and a couple of years ago, he made a very astute point or, or theory. And he said the there there might be something to Dutch positional play hmm. that is slightly different to Spanish positional play that makes it a little bit harder for, for, for it to be translated to English football where you have to take down low blocks. Interesting. 
Um, and this might be why Frank de Boer has not been the or Frank de Boer and Peter Bosch and others might not have been the success in the higher up leagues. But whereas sure. other managers who have you know learned this positional play, this Colombian positional play, but gone through Spain may have been more. That's fascinating. Um, uh, it's a fantastic, amazing, yeah, fantastic observation, and you know something that Ten Hag. You can see how Ten Hag subverts this, and what, in his two IX teams, what I, I often call them two IX teams. So you've got the the eighteen nineteen IX team with Frankie de Jong and Matthias de Ligt, and then you've got the twenty twenty one one with uh, Sebastian Haller and uh, Ryan Gravenberg. Yep, and I think the second one is where you can see Ten Hag put together these ideas of. Hmm. I need to get a bit clever in Europe. I need to find ways to break down low blocks. Uh, and his solution for that was get a big lad in and do loads of crosses. <laughs> so, but so it came down to personnel. Was it down to personnel? Like, did he have different players? Did he tailor it to the player? Like, he talks a lot about needing you write in a piece, like having to change, and 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 that the players make the system. It's not the system. The play, it's about the players. Uh, I, I know that sounds a little bit like coach speak, uh, but is that twenty? 21 team closer to in resembling the current Manchester United team. Is that why there's a bit more yeah, perhaps familiarity I, there? I think the 2021 team for Ajax that got to the Champions League quarterfinals is, uh, they're probably the reason why Ten Hag is getting job offers. Okay. So that, you know, the first team that gets to the Champions League semifinal it is knocked out to Tottenham Hotspur in cruel fashion. And, and you know, oh, gosh. You, speak to, you speak to Liverpool fans and they, and they often, you know, look left and look right and go, yeah, if we played Ajax, we'd have been in a lot more trouble. Sure. Um, I think that team is fantastic in terms of positional play and coaching, but he's also made, you know, that secret source is helped by the fact you've got Mateus. It was about the players, yeah. Right. And Mateus Delict, who at the time was a fantastic young centre-back that no one knew anything about. And you've got Frankie de Jong, who is a, just an absolute cheat yeah. code yeah. <laughs> in the first two-thirds of the field. Sure. You, know, you want to get the ball from your penalty spot to the centre circle, Best one of the best players in the world, like just doing those that thing. Exactly. Um, and I think that team is amazing. And I think, you know, good coaching, great players. And then he loses those two players. Delic goes to Juventus, Frankie goes to Barcelona. And then he has a, you know, he has a, he has a issue. The 1920 mm-hmm. season is cut short because of COVID. And they, Alex would have won the, the league title then, but he got cut short. And then he comes in and he goes, right, I need to build another good team, not just in the area of the visa, but in Europe. And in comes in Gravenberg. Gravenberg is more focused on the final third than De Jong. So that, that causes a change to the midfield. Steven Berghaus comes in. You also get um, Sebastian Haller as a striker, who is a very different one to Tadic, who was playing Force 9, or Dolberg, or Huntelaar. And then you can see those adaptations. And I think it's those adaptations... Um, a slightly more pragmatic streak to yeah. say someone like the Boer or Peter Bosch that makes him that I think that was the reason why Tottenham Hotspur had an interview with him. I think that was the reason why Manchester United were looking at him. And ultimately, I think that was the reason why Manchester United picked him over, say, Mauricio Pochettino. Sure. Because Ten Hag, when we talk about process and we talk about the, the, the work in progress, I think you know a manager gets a, a season, season and a half, and then you go, is this a your surname team, you know, how long did it take Manchester City to become a Pep Guardiola? Right. Team? When does the, and, when does the stamp, when does the coach yeah. have the stamp on the team? So, you know, Pep Guardiola's first season in Manchester City, they finished third because Gal Clichy and Bakary Sagna just can't do the thing he wants them to do. Then he goes out and buys Carl Walker uh, and, he, in, and other things. And then they become a Pep Guardiola team and they go sure. from the Premier League. Um, and I think a Mauricio Pochettino team is fantastic 
but there hasn't been a Pochettino team in quite a while. PSG right. never became a Pochettino team. No, no. Tottenham Hotspur stopped being a Pochettino's team probably a couple of months before that Champions League final. Um, and what you see is very often in, in the way to becoming a Pochettino team and the downturn from being a Pochettino team, the team loses. Hmm. Sometimes the team loses games they quote-unquote shouldn't lose. Yeah. Whereas, one, a Ten Hag team is... As Alex has shown, a Ten Hag team is a fantastic footballing machine that can do very good things. And two, the process to becoming a Ten Hag team, Ten Hag has shown an ability to go, ah, I need to make a change in this two or three gap scenario to not get defeated and continue good momentum. Sure. And you're seeing this in Manchester United. You know, they, yeah. they lose their first two games of the Premier League season and he goes, ah, the yeah. hair can't pass out the back. Let's make yep. check and balances come in. It was interesting because Ten Hag also, you know, just just being an Ajax manager, it, it's perhaps it's the top club in, in in the Netherlands. I think it's just like a, an incredible brand, a massive club. And it, it, I think too often people think, yeah, but it's you know, how hard is it to manage in, in, in the Eredivisie if you have Ajax? And yeah, perhaps you can see the contrast between a Frank de Boer that won four straight titles and then struggled and failed in the Premier League. And a coach, to your point, like Ten Hag, that had a different sort of education and then took over Ajax and I think understood the magnitude of the Ajax brand. And and, and that's probably suiting him in coming into one of the biggest clubs in the world. Um, tell me once again, how do you say clear in Dutch? Dudelijk. Dudelijk. Okay, so this this Dutch source, source of mine that's also a coach wrote right to me when I, when I asked him, is Ten Hag an effective communicator? He said, yes, not too difficult, simple, clear what to do in the in the four moments of a game is 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 how he described Ten Hag and you you break this down in in different different ways in the story you, you sort of go piece by piece uh, and and I mentioned it before you go through through the type of the spine that Manchester United had before the type of spine that they have now uh, how the positional play is 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 manifesting itself with the new crop of players great examples of of Rashford. Um, and Elanga, uh, you know, players that you perhaps you you've pegged in certain positions and being able to move about the final third in, in very effective ways to unbalance the defense. Uh, Casemiro, I want to ask you about him. You know, I, I, I do follow Real Madrid pretty closely. I have since I was a kid. I love I love him. I love Casemiro. I would I would hug and kiss that guy if I saw him in person. And, you know, he had a bit of a, a not evolution. But how would you describe his arrival? Uh, and his current form pre-World Cup, post-World Cup, because at first people were like, oh, maybe he has won too much. And now suddenly this is not as, as I don't know, challenging for him as, as we thought it would be. I think he was a great signing. What have you seen so far from the Brazilian Casemiro? So I think what's been interesting is, is watching Manchester United fans who watch majority Premier League games and, and the Champions League games realize what Casemiro is like in league football. Sure. So when he, when he signs, so he signs just after he's unveiled when Manchester United beat Liverpool, and that's the sort of real turnaround moment in the season where they go, oh, it's not three defeats in a row. United Ten Hag is onto something here. Um, and he's unveiled, wears the suit. He has a very nice meeting with with Roy Keane. They have a hug. <laughs> oh, this is quite nice. He, he has that very fun interview. That's important to get Roy Keane's buy-in. Yeah. He has Always. a fun interview with Andy Mitten uh, in Portuguese, and, and they ask no in Spanish. Sorry. Uh, and he was asked about how, how do you feel about joining Manchester United who aren't in the Champions League? And he sort of makes a joke about, well, I've got five. Which, <laughs> that's just ridiculous. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> way to explain his character. Uh, 
<laughs> the big thing with Casemiro, and I think the thing that surprised Manchester United fans who don't watch too much La Liga games, because yeah. if you're in the UK, it's, it can be quite hard to watch La Liga games. Okay. They're simply just, it's not on paid TV very sure. often. Um, it is how good he is on the ball. There, there is a there is a common misconception Absolutely. that Casemiro is yeah. the tackler who then uh-huh. passes five yards to Luka Modric or Tony Cruz and they do everything. Whereas Casemiro has the, he has a fantastic passing range. He, he can make very good line part, breaking passes. Uh, and as they've seen this season, he's very good at making the tackle, spinning around, looking up, and then hitting it first time. Yeah, to everyone. He's not, you know, he's not Luka Modric. He's not Tony Cruz. Uh, so he can be when he's he can be targeted too. Yeah, he can be yeah. targeted as, as if you're going to counter press or if you're going to press the, the 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 defensive midfielder. He can be pressed. Yes. He can be pressed and and troubled. But to your point. You know, so many years playing with Modric and Tony Cruz and just knowing where they are and then going into a Brazil side where just incredible players all the time. Like, yeah, you can see that his instincts are just elite. He feels like a throwback. I, I, yeah, I have no idea absolutely. if this makes sense, but he every now and again, I, I watch him do something and it feels like he fell through a time warp from 2002. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. He could have been totally like a Dunga. Could have been on that team. But a a better version of Dunga, I think. In in that way of, you know, very often now, you're not a central midfielder. You're a a six or a four. You're a defensive midfielder or you're a box-to-box player or you're number 10 or you're Mazala and you you want to play in a three and go up. And then Casemiro turns up and he goes, I I play in midfield. You go, oh, but what can you do? He goes, everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah. And you go, oh, for how long? Do you tire after six years? Like, nope. Just, just do everything. Yeah, and I think that's been great. Um, Manchester United have needed a defensive midfielder since Paul Pogba arrived, so since 2016. And, but and what they've... kind of central? Like what? Because I think there's that's the part <laughs> when I think of Man U, I think of Joaquin, I think mm-hmm. of Yapstam, I think of the fear that they can instill in their opponents. And of course, you look on the touchline and you have, to your point, the poker face Sir Alex. Uh, they were just like this evil empire of a team <laughs> and don't you think they needed some of that steel like not just a great number six but a player like Casemiro that, that we talked about has five champions leagues but also yeah he might tackle his grandmother if it comes down to that so as someone who's watched a lot of Real Madrid you've seen how Casemiro is phenomenal at not getting booked for things people should be sent off for yeah, I don't know what it is. Maybe he, I don't know if he talks to the referee beforehand it's, or if, if the referee sees him and said. Remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, He's very so, skilled at that. You're right. Marsa, <laughs> I think Marsa said he has a cloak of invisibility, the Spanish newspaper. And there's been two or three <laughs> times where I've been at Old Trafford uh, and Casemiro has made a tackle and I've gone, I've looked left and right going, has the referee seen that? Um, and I think I think there there is the aura, yeah. you know, the ability to look at players. Uh, and I've, you've seen this two or three times in Premier League games, especially when teams concede frequently and, and players sort of point to their foreheads going, focus, mm-hmm. focus. Mm-hmm. Gasimiro has that. And there yeah. were two or three times last season, partic- actually, in fact, we're talking, this time last season in February, Manchester United had a series of three games where they dominate the first 45 minutes and they Hell concede off. very early on yeah. in the second half. And then they draw the game 1-1. They do it against Southampton. They do it against Middlesbrough. They do it against Burnley. And it was a real problem i remember talking to ralph franklin interim manager i went what are you doing at half time hmm. uh, and then he you know in the way ralph frank often does he proceeded to tell me everything they did during half time i went that's a <laughs> very candid and thorough answer um and united had a real problem once they lost the ball and they had a real problem of low morale once they conceded and i think casemiro is one of those players where if they concede you can see him just look around and go no 
mm-hmm. okay, you don't lose our heads next job. Not Which, like again, this. Not like this, basically. Yeah, things that you can't see in a, in a spreadsheet or you can't necessarily screenshot, but yeah. it's that tiny imperceptible thing that makes someone win five Champions Leagues, which makes Real Madrid win the, the Champions League in that ridiculous fashion they did last season. And I think that's been fantastic. Having Christian Eriksen next to him as well has been fantastic because Manchester United have gone from... Modric-like, Modric-like player, you know? I mean, there's some similarities. Uh, Ajax-educated player, yeah. someone who can, uh, again, like you said before, someone who can be pressured and can be targeted, but is just a lot more comfortable on the ball and can sure. pass into the final third in a way that Manchester United have missed. If you think about someone like Marcus Rashford, for, for large parts of last season, the only people who were playing constantly and could find Marcus Rashford in the final third was Bruno Fernandes and then sometimes Luke Shaw, but Luke Shaw missed six weeks of the end of last yeah. season. And now you look at Manchester United this season, Rashford can make the run because Bruno can make the pass. Shaw can make the pass. Ericsson can make the pass. Casemiro can make Lissandro's the pass. Lissandro's passing Lissandro is... Lissandro can... Oh, my goodness. Incredible. I had no idea his passing was that Oh, good. my goodness. Yeah. Um, I mean... And I think that's another big difference as well. Yeah. They're just more tools. They're, there are more tools on the field. There are better tools. And they've got a clearer idea as to what to do in certain games. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Okay, Carl. So I want to ask you about counterpressing because you brought it up mm-hmm. a little bit and it's a big part of the story. And I just, I, I'm fascinated by the different ways that elite clubs counterpress. I read in a, a story recently uh, by, from The Athletic, John Mueller and another writer, uh, forgive me, I forget his name, but it was about Arsenal's, uh, how they counterpress in possession. It's mm-hmm. like it's you can see a three-two uh, at the like a th- like a, tri- a three-man triangle, two in front, uh, and, and while they're in possession, they're already prepared to counterpress when they lose the ball. It was great to read, and then, and you go into a lot of the the counterpressing methods of of Ten Hag and, and Manchester United. But before we get there, quickly and remind me to go back to counterpressing. <laughs> but we're talking about clean players on the ball, and you this is this is a great line that you write uh, under the subhead what. What do the 2022-23 United do in possession? And your first line here is United are getting comfortable with treating the ball with respect. Like I almost fell out of my chair when I read that because <laughs> it's true. Like you need to love the ball. It's got to be like your your wife, your partner, your best friend. And and the way you describe Manchester before is a number of United center backs treat the ball as if it was a bomb with a short fuse. Uh, oh my God, just unbelievable writing there. And the description, you can see it. You know, Harry Maguire left to carry from deep and bypassed McFred, the pivot entirely. They were rushing the ball forward. And now you've mentioned these players. So how important has that been for the Manchester United to just like having the ball again? Truly, 
Um, one of the benefits of closed door football, I, I know quite a few people didn't like it, but one of the big benefits was overhearing what the players were saying during games. And one of the more common yeah. refrains were, you know, some part through a second half was Harry Maguire using very industrial language to his midfielders, keep the F in ball. Um, <laughs> the, the, just the nervier moments were because they just, they just couldn't. Yeah. You know, great teams. And we saw this in the World Cup. Uh, there is often, you saw this in, World Cup, in particular with Croatia. Sure. Where there is a five to 10 minute period and you're watching a game and your brain starts activating the screensaver because you're bored. <laughs> you're, you're, nothing is happening. Uh, where the thing that is in fact happening is Croatia or a team with good midfielders is going, Keeping the ball. we're going to keep the ball. Yeah. We're just going to slow things down. You're having too much fun. So we're just going to bore you for a little bit. You see this very often, uh, again, as a La Liga watcher, if you watch Barcelona in a Clasico, yeah. Good Barcelona in a Classico, and you always have a moment where they go, "All right, Real Madrid, yeah, we're just this, the, this is ours now." Is that the slow, it. slow, fast that you describe? Essentially, slow, slow, fast is very much will pass around for ages, pull you out of certain positions, and then once that gap happens, fast, Boom, they're there. Okay, um, so slow, slow, fast is you see a lot again. Spanish positional play, very, very good on that. Uh, well, the fast bit didn't happen too much at the World Cup, but yes. but you, but they were mesmerizing <laughs> at times. Yeah. You could see it. You could see it happening. Um, and I think that is something you see a lot in possession now in Manchester United. Our, uh, one good example was my uh, Manchester United beat Tottenham Hotspur 3-0 at home. There was a period in the second half. So again, Manchester United, very, very good in the first half, gets in. Uh, and I, I watched that, this game not in the press box, but in one of the seats. And the two or three United fans at halftime going, oh, yeah, we've had loads of good pressure. We haven't really scored. I hope it doesn't come back to bite us, hmm. which is something that often happened in previous seasons, because while United had pressure, they didn't know how to sustain it. And it was very much a case of you have to capitalize in your 15 minutes of ascendancy. Otherwise that's it. Yeah. Whereas now Manchester the window United, closes. Yeah. Because they have, they treat the ball with more respect. The window lasts longer. Sure. And when it shuts, there's not a, well, that's your lot. There, there's now a greater confidence of we can reopen this window if we try this again. Um, and I think that's helped by having a more settled midfield. I think that's improved by Ten Hag, working on terms of overloads and working in terms of zones. He often talks about, I think if you listen to Nag press conferences a lot, he talks, when he likes a player, he's attacking play, he says he runs in behind. Yeah. It's something he's he very, very important. Uh, and when he likes, when he compliments Bruno Fernandes in particular, he goes, he receives in between the lines. He very much wants a player the move to start with someone receiving between the opposition's midfield and defence mm -hmm. and then someone else immediately stretching play. And those things make United better in that they're not peekaboo jab, sure. jabbing in a boxing match, but it's, right. a, it's a bit more controlled. And, and that's where, you know, you mentioned in the story, it, there's a, there's an audio clip about Facundo Pelestri, the, the Uruguayan, uh, who I saw up close in, in Qatar. I, I, I ran into him in the mix zone. You know, he's, he's, a, he's not a big player, but he has, it's in there. He's just, he's can stretch the, the, the field. He, he mm -hmm. will run in a straight line. He will press like crazy. Uh, he's not going to come in off the wing and, and he's not an inverted winger. Uh, th th that's an interesting compliment. And the fact that they, that he's going to stay with Manchester United, um, you know, perhaps he will get more time is I, I want to ask you before uh, Pelestri, I, I think is just like an interesting profile, but Lisandro Martinez, uh, I remember watching him at Defensa Justicia and 
his passing out of the back, they were playing a back three, Defensa Justicia, a small club in Argentina, but they play like the big clubs. They play mm-hmm. like River Plate, where it's consistently attack, attack, attack. We keep the ball, we move around. And he was just so clean and technical. It, it was really incredible to watch. And what was equally as fascinating was watching the English press, the English fan warm up to this player that a lot of people in South America were like, this guy is elite. Just mm-hmm. put him on a put him on a good team in Europe and watch. What has how has he earned not only the respect of perhaps the Premiership, but Manchester United supporters that I think were desperately wanting that type of mentality on the pitch. I think he really took a lot of people by surprise. I, I'm not sure how much you saw it in August, but there was a lot of conversation about his height. Yeah, it was a all lot about, of his about his height. I, I was um, defending him as as a fellow short guy. I was like, leave my boy alone. Just he was so you know, Sky Sports News was saying he's he's the shortest centre back in the Premier League. There was a lot of talk about being five foot nine. I've said two or three times on podcasts. If you're listening to this and you're five foot nine, I'm really sorry (laughs) that we we just keep bringing up five foot nine and calling it short. Wait, I mean it's above average. Um, And I, Jamie Carragher, well storied Premier League centre back, said he wouldn't have a centre back that short in his team. Um, and I think Myanmar has caused a very small recalibration of how we look at centre backs. And, and I think what's also been interesting is his passing range as well. In yes, it is very, very rare you get a centre back who can pass that well, whose priority is attacking the man rather than the space. Sure. Right. So uh, if you think about the best passing centre backs, they're nearly all described as Rolls Royces. Right, mm. especially in English language. The, the English language, when they love a centre back, you get called the Rolls Royce, okay. which is a big luxury car, and you you feel like you're safe and you're cruising around. Rafael Varane is a Rolls Royce centre back, you know, because he hey, makes you feel. Well, safe. I loved him at Madrid. I mean, I, uh, I always felt like he, even today, I watch him play, and uh, he he can still surprise you. He still yeah. surprises you because he doesn't. You think you got him. You think he's not quick enough. You think he's out of position. You think you can. He won't be clean and. He always is. Yeah. And Michael Cox wrote a fantastic piece a couple of seasons ago where he said the English language doesn't really have the words like libero. Yeah, uh, true. Itali- Italy. So he said a very good way of explaining certain backs is one is a cat and one is a dog. So cats manage space and they jockey and they time things and they wait for the plant to make a tackle where the other one is a dog and a dog just shoots up Goes. And, rah, 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 and gets the ball. <laughs> uh, and uh, Premier League watchers love cats defenders they, they like people who make defending look graceful uh, and if you're a dog then you you better make all your tackles otherwise we're going to make jokes about you and a very good example of a dog who people don't really like anymore is harry Maguire. because sure. his timing is off lissandro martinez is a dog absolutely yes he is he's, he's, he's called the butcher people call him a pit bull <laughs> blah, blah, blah blah he's very aggressive he shoots off his line he because he's five foot nine he has to be. And what's interesting is because he's five foot nine, he has to be perfect in his tackles yeah. because he doesn't have the, the, the safety blanket of being very large or yeah. of, of, of a larger defender. Uh, and I think this is why people like Jeremy Carragher and others have gone, I, I don't want a five foot nine centre back because you, you have to be perfect every single time you make a yeah. tackle. I'd much rather have someone who doesn't need to be perfect but can be good every now and again. Whereas Lasagna Miles just walked into that team and yeah, he had those two games where he didn't look great and then. Rafael Varane came in and boom. And, yeah. you're saying, and you're going, oh, he, he makes every tackle. And then on top of that, he's got the passing of someone 
who, who a player that short and whatever shouldn't pass that well, and yet he is. Yeah. And I think he's very he's very clearly become a fantastic fan favorite. Um, there's been more than one Manchester United fan calling him the butcher. Uh, he just before United's game against Reading, where he didn't start, he was wearing a bucket hat, which uh, <laughs> a lot of. I mean, it rains a lot in Manchester, and bucket hats were very much popular in the nineties in Manchester as well. Oh so gosh, two or three people saying, uh, just like, oh, he gets it, he gets um, it, yeah. Uh, which I think once once a once the fan base goes, he gets it. You've become a cult hero. So. Yeah, Lissandra Martinez is doing fantastic. Shall we talk about counter-pressing? Because you said we were. Yes, please, please. <laughs> because, uh, and particularly how Ten Hag wants at Manchester United to, to, to counter-press. Because you have it in the story. You go into it, and it, it, it very much a work in progress, right? Uh, but the effectiveness of some of the, the counter-pressing measures that they've incorporated, uh, there's some good examples here against Arsenal, you know how how far are they from being a very good counter pressing side, Manchester United? I think it's probably the long. This is one of the longer developments. It's I hard. It's hard to, yeah. to to just become that. By the way. So to go back to the comment from your your Dutch contact, he said the four parts of play. Yes. And I'm gonna I'm going to take a guess here that he is referring to in possession, out of possession, what to do when you lose possession, and then your work against the ball, sure. out. So, whatnot, which is one of those is that amazing thing of top level football. Seventy five percent of football is what you do without the ball. Now, exactly. Yep. Um, and counter pressing is very hard. You know, I mean, strictest way counter pressing is how do you press after you've lost the ball? Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, Jurgen Klopp came through with Geigen pressing, saying if you all swarm a team and you win the ball high up the field, amazing. But then there's mm-hmm. also the thing of how do you react after you've lost the ball? And I think. There, there's two things that, to counter-press. One is the ferocity, and like how many men do you send up after you've lost the ball? And two is is uh, what John McKenzie of TIFO often talks about, which is rest defense. Well, you know, what does the rest of your team do? If, you, if you're sending four players up to attack, what's the other sure. six doing behind? And rest defense is a big thing for United and will be a weakness for Ten Hag's United for a long time. Okay. Part because it, it'll be a... You know, in a sense, a feature, not a bug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it will be a feature of Ten Hag's thing because Ten Hag ideally wants to send his front three up front. He wants his number ten to go up front. He wants at least one of his fullbacks to go up front as well. So, at any point in time, he he wants like four attackers, maybe five, sometimes six. So, if you lose the ball, it's you versus four. Yeah. Uh, so that means your defensive midfield pivot has to be very, very good at managing space, um, being good at tackling, and also delaying transition. Uh, when that's Casemiro, fantastic. But you you write about that how they're not they're not that great a team in transition, defensive transition, no. and that's that's okay like, for now. It's like it's out yeah. there. We know this. Yeah. When, when you got Casemiro being the defensive midfielder, great. If it's say someone like Fred, then it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, and then your back three has to be very good at managing space and being good in your tackles. When the, when two of those three is Asensio Martinez and Rafael Varane, great. Two quick defenders. They know what to do in those situations. If it's, say, Harry Maguire and uh, Terrell Malassia, slightly different. Maguire is mm. not as quick as Rafael Varane or Alessandro Martinez. Terrell Malassia is five foot seven. He's he's enthusiastic, but he can be bullied off the ball as well. Yep. So those are issues. And I think you, you correct that by, one, making sure your players at the front are more secure in possession when they're aware of going, hey, if we lose the ball, there's yeah. only two men back. And two, you're making sure the people behind are a lot wiser to potential threats before they happen. This, this, you know, one of this, one of the great things is 
when you've got Casemiro, not only is he very good defensively, but he's very good at the subtle commands to the people sure. ahead of him. His anticipation um, is is remarkable, uh, yeah. honestly. Like just knowing where the ball may be, where, where the movement may be, where he needs to step in, where, what his triggers are, are are just are very cool. I think he's also improved Fred as well. Oof, well, yeah. I mean, for, well, him and Fred have had a good relationship playing for Brazil, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you can very clearly tell there are three or four times where there'll, where, where there'll be a breaking play, and Fred will be stood somewhere, and Casemiro would, would have just shouted ahead, going, "Shift left," and it's that tiny, tiny mm-hmm. bit of if you move five yards forward before the ball is played. You don't need to sprint 35 yards back to exactly. make the tackle because you're already there. Um, but yeah, I think this is this will be the hardest thing to, to get right between now and the end of the season and the seasons ahead because especially in the Premier League where it's not just transitional-based attacks but also long balls from teams like Everton or, or you've got a team like Aston Villa which has a potent amount of dribblers or so someone like Crystal about, Palace. Or Newcastle. Yeah, or Newcastle's now they're just running at people. They want they want a counter. They yeah. want a counter. I mean, if you have Miguel Marone and other uh, and players like that, like why not? So uh, I think we often talk about the Premier League being the best in the world or the Bundesliga attacks or whatnot. I think the Premier League strength and the difficulty of the Premier League and the difficulty for Ten Hag is the amount of tactical variance you will find in the Premier League. You know, the Bundesliga has eighteen teams and they all roughly defend in the middle block and they love transitional based attacks. So uh, teams that play closer to a Bundesliga style, Jaden Sancho seems to play better against them in the Premier League, right? Interesting. Sancho, Interesting. There was a week. Yeah. There was a week. There was this time last year. Jaden Sancho played Burnley, Southampton, and uh, Middlesbrough in the same week, and the team he played best against was Southampton because he sort of looked up and went, "Oh, you play like Leipzig." <laughs> <laughs> I know what to do here. <laughs> yeah, whereas he played against Burnley and Burnley just sat deep, like 20 yards deep and it was like, ah, right. Yeah. Maybe I need to do some nutmegs here. Uh, whereas <laughs> when you play against, when you play with Ten Hag as your manager, you'll go, okay, Jaden, I'm going to take some of that responsibility off you and make every team have a slightly you know, more areas for you to attack. So you don't have to think and recalibrate as much as you may have done in seasons previous. Carl, you mentioned that there was a match recently where you weren't in the press box. Uh, you were, you know, in, in with the supporters, and and that leads me to something I, I was really anxious to ask you: is what what is the game day atmosphere like at Manchester United right now? Like, <laughs> is it is you've mentioned before? Like, you subtly said things like, "Oh, like we only have after fifteen minutes, we're not playing well. Watch out!" Like, is it is it fearful? Is it tepid? Are do do are our supporters arriving at Old Trafford thinking like fearing the worst? Uh, like, what sort of evolution has that been like uh, in just the environment around the club? We've seen the protests against the American owners and all that. We know, uh, but just what have expectations changed? And can you take me through perhaps the worst of times to where we are now as far as Manchester support? Manchester I mean, United support. I've I've been at Old Trafford in when a, a, a minor riot broke out. Uh, in protest of the Super League and they got a game against Liverpool cancelled in, in 2021. I think that is, in terms of what's the worst atmosphere, something where police were called in yeah. uh, and, and the game was called off because the fans were just so angry, not at the, the state of the team on the field, but the state of the ownership situation in the Super League and whatnot. Uh, and there were points last season where it was noticeably quiet, right? Towards the end of last season, there were a lot of season ticket holders in their various forums and WhatsApp groups going, look, you know, I'm supposed to be going to Manchester United versus whatever towards the end of the season. Does anyone want my ticket? 
I'll, I'll okay. you can have it for twenty percent less because I don't want to. I, you know, I still I need someone to go in my place, so I don't lose my season ticket. But I don't really want to watch this this group of players right now. I they were devalue. They were devaluing yeah. their own side. I watched Manchester United lose four 0 against Brighton away from home, and Manchester United fans went over to to the travelling fans with a sort of mea culpa. Mm. Uh, as Manchester United fans said, "You don't care. You're not fit to wear the shirt." Um, and I've watched a number of players over the summer go, oh, he has to be sold. He's useless. He's not a top four player. He's not a top six player. He needs to be playing in the bottom half. He needs to be going to a relegated club who have now just been voted, you know, player of the month. Who? Who's that? Who's What type I of mean, player is that? People were saying some pretty, pretty aggressive things about Marcus Rashford's form. Oh, saying yeah. he needs to be sold and this and this and this. Um, you can trust it to now where there is hope in a way that I haven't heard in a while. Um, they're, they're, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking to you right now. This is when Wednesday, February 1st, Manchester United about to play their second leg of the League Cup. If they win this League Cup final, going to Wembley. There's a lot of people right now who are looking at hotels and trains to London, right okay. Now, okay. At, at, which is that sort of great thing. Yeah. Atmosphere at Manchester United is always going to be um, a mixed bag. So you've got the, you, you know, the loudest section of Old Trafford is the Stratford end. Um, and you, everyone talks about scoring in front of the Stratford end and how important that is and how great it is as you, and that's going to get better because 3,000 seats that were uh, called an offering executive customers is now going to be changed back into to regular seating. So that's allowed us. It's Manchester United. It's one of the biggest football clubs in the world. You do get a degree of uh, day trippers and tourists sure, who of course. necessarily might not be the most au fait with songs, but are here to enjoy a Premier League game. Yep. So... Uh, when a quote-unquote smaller team comes through, they always come through and go, this is a library. Shall we sing a song for you? You don't sing as loud as whatever. <laughs> we're, we're, anyway, they're very loud until Manchester United score a goal. And then you realise, ah, Manchester United fans are very loud and have things. Uh, there was a quite interesting uh, sing-off between Manchester United and Everton in the FA Cup recently where Everton were going, ah, you can't sing. And then United scored uh, through you know, Rashford creating on goal and then Manchester United fans just let him have it. Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting United fans this season is they they feel almost ahead of schedule. They're, they're almost, they've okay. been taken aback by the transformation of Ten Hag. You know, before the start of this season, most people thought Liverpool would be second place, Manchester City would be first place by a runaway margin, Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea would be doing well and then, you know, Tottenham Hotspur and Antonio Conte would be doing very well. So it would be a fight between Arsenal, Newcastle, United, maybe Aston Villa for, for the European League places. Tottenham haven't really kicked on. Thomas Tuchel's left Chelsea. Liverpool have gone wherever. Arsenal have gone this way. Uh, and then many United fans went, oh, could this be an opportunity yeah, for United? Sure. This, and there have been two or three times where United really haven't taken their window. But to see United so decisively go, yeah, we're going to take this top four spot. Yeah, we're going to make a go of it in the Cups. Yeah, we're, we're not actually going to try and tank any of these games. We're actually going to try and win everything. Uh, under a manager like Ten Hag, who is, he's going, you know, Manchester United have beaten Manchester City this season. They've beaten yeah. Liverpool this season. They've beaten Arsenal. They've beaten Spurs. They've beaten all these teams once. Um, and Ten Hag is doing this sometimes with, I'm not going to say one arm behind his back, but, you know, maybe two fingers salivating mm-hmm. together behind his back. Um, I think that's got United fans going, this guy, he knows what he knows. So he, he has the fans. He has the yeah. fans right now. I okay. think one of the one of the big secret missions to Ten Hag this season was making Manchester United fans forget about Pochettino because Pochettino yeah. was a legitimate candidate for this, yeah. this job. Um, and it was only maybe 
it was only after the defeat to Brentford where Manchester United fans went, should have got Pochettino. But now it's just like, no, I'm so glad Manchester United have Eric Ten Hag. Uh, I heard this a lot after the Tottenham Hotspur game where United beat Conte, uh, Conte Spurs team that were quite poor. Yeah. That quite a few United fans were, oh my God, could you imagine if we got Conte? I'm so glad we've got Ten Hag. <laughs> Oh gosh! Only in the Premier League. <laughs> Only know. in the Premier League, we're like the best managers in the in the world. Or like, thank God we didn't get that guy. You know, a guy that's won the Champions <laughs> League and, and multiple titles. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, you mentioned Marcus Rashford. Let, let's let's start to close with this. I mean, can we talk about Marcus Rashford? I mean, what what a, what a player, uh, just elite human being, obviously. You know him well. You've co-written two books with him. Uh, but before we get to the books, you know, I, I, I was at the World Cup and one thing I learned about being at a World Cup, it was my first World Cup, you know, covering it is that you don't watch a lot of games like you watch the games <laughs> you're supposed to watch. But it's not like, hey, like, you know, the, the times where you decide to go watch a game as a fan or, or because of outside interest, uh, it was difficult. And so I didn't get to watch England a lot. But then I came home from the World Cup. I just watched some highlights. And every time Marcus Rashford popped up, I'm like what an incredible goal that was. And he's just continued it. So like you mentioned him as a player that is, is, is very, he's polarizing, honestly, um, both as a sportsman, as an activist, uh, and just as a, as a young footballer, where is he today? And, and how is he, how is he viewed and accepted in Manchester at Manchester United? And I guess as a whole in England, I think right now, you know, February 1st, 2023, Marcus Rashford is one of the inform forwards in Europe. He's playing he's, so well. He's got he's got 10 goals since the World Cup. Um, he's one of the highest goals. He's one of the most productive players in, in, in Europe's top five leagues. I'll be doing a video in TIFO about him not too long from now. Um, he, he, he's in that very fun place where uh, he's scoring so many goals, you can now call his celebration a trademark celebration. I read that story. Um, and I think the turnaround has been really stark. Yeah. This time last year, he was. It was him versus Anthony Langer for the right-sided position in Ten Hag's system. Um, and Anthony Langer's great strength is that he runs in behind, and he was doing it to a volume that Marcus Rashford had displayed in the past, but for various reasons, Marcus Rashford wasn't able to do last season. You know, he Rashford had played several seasons quite hurt made the decision to, to get sh shoulder surgery before last season, turned up without a real preseason, turned up in October rather than August for everyone else. And, and by the time Rashford turned up, the team was in the middle of a, a slow malaise that sure. continued all through last season. I think this season he's benefited from the fact that he has no injuries. He had a full preseason. He had a preseason before his preseason. So we know he went to Nike headquarters in Portland 
for for a week and a bit and really worked on um, functional strength, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah. Uh, there's this old adage that if you look at a, uh, a football academy um, and you want to know which players are going to make it and which players might not, you should look at their backs um, mm, because they say if you if you give if you give a bunch of 17 year olds access to a gym, uh, if you give a bunch of 17 year old boys, they're going to go all biceps. Gym, there you go. Right. So give a bunch of, they, they all go biceps. They all work their pecs. <laughs> they all work abs. Um, yeah. Whereas like the the one or two who you know are thinking about how do I make my body good for football they have worked their back muscles. Gotcha. Um, and it's that sort of like subtle difference. And, and I think there's been a noticeable He does look stronger. There's something like body. physically, yeah. Physically, his, you can see his it. His upper body is dramatically different this season. Yeah. He scored two or three goals this season where, I mean, Rashford's very quick. He's got explosive pace. Um, he, he, he has a couple of skill moves. He's very good at nutmegs and whatnot. Um, and very often he would run around a fullback. Uh, and sometimes last season and season before, you could see a fullback would go, I'm not going to let him run around me because the moment he touches the ball, I'm going to just tackle him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what you'd often see if, you know, in the first half, a, a fullback would go, don't let him get the ball, hit him, yeah. hit him really hard. And the second half, Rashford would go, okay, when he comes in really, really quickly, I'm going to nutmeg him and go around him. Whereas this season, he scored loads, I think he scored two or three goals where the fullbacks come in really, really hard to try and tackle him. And Rashford just sort of stuck his arm out and go, nope. I can. Oh. I'm strong enough now to fend you off. Yeah, and, and confidence. Keep running. Yeah, um, and yeah, confidence as well. He, yeah. you, you mentioned Miguel Almiron earlier. I think Almiron's in this fantastic place where last season he may have taken five touches to get into the penalty area. Now he's gone. I can take three and shoot. Yep. Uh, and Rashford's similar in that he is now hitting things earlier. The ball is, you know, it's still the same technique, still great technique, but he, he's doing it a lot more before the goalkeepers got set. Yeah, and it's like oh, and also I think the type of goals he's scoring are goals he's not necessarily scored too often before. You know, for all of his the majority of his goals across his years at Manchester United were with his right foot. He, I was going to say he looks two footed in the box now. Yeah, he's scoring with his left foot. He's scoring yeah. headers now. I think he's yeah. benefiting from working with with Benny McCarthy, who just came in this summer as well. And also I think he's benefiting from Ten Hag saying. Ten Hag said, we like his directness, we like his speed, but also we've, we've, we've shown him the areas of the field we want him to stay in, mm. and we've shown everyone else, you can find him here, and there's more players able to find him. He's picking up the ball closer to goal, and he's able to, to, to do better things in there because he's got a, a stronger toolbox, if that makes sense. Did it start at the World Cup? Because the, some of the goals he was scoring were like that. It wasn't the classic, oh, he's on a breakaway, he beats the keeper. Uh, like He was sort of slicing and dicing into the box, finishing with the left foot. Uh, it does look like a bit of a transformation. And you mentioned in the story with Ten Hag saying like, I'm not Harry Potter, which is a mm -hmm. great line, you know, like it, it's not all on, you know, Ten Hag sort of deflecting that don't, you know, don't give me all the credit. Uh, but this is, seems like a, a trickle down effect of everything that the, the club is sort of in, in, has endured what they're living through with, with Ten Hag and a player like Marcus Rashford, so valuable to the brand, to the, to the, to the team and to the tactics that perhaps it was just a matter of time. And before Marcus Rashford really came into his own, is he coming to his own in your opinion, or is this just one step towards perhaps peak? I think Mar you can look through the uh, athletic archives and there's a piece from me uh, in, in early 2021, around about late 2020, where I said, there is, you know, you know, I've looked at all the numbers and I said, there's, I said, there's probably going to be a point somewhere in Marcus Rashford's career where we'll go, he was world-class. And I said, I'm not sure if it's going to last six games. I'm not sure if it's going to last six months. 
uh, and maybe you know it, it could last six years. But he had the raw materials. Yeah. Um, he had the raw materials. He had the so he had the below shoulders material, so directness, great dribbling, a fantastic ball carrying. He had the above shoulders. Um, so uh, uh, every time Marcus Rashford, we play rock paper scissors, and he <laughs> will not allow me to win. Why? So if I if I play him if I play rock paper scissors and I win, he goes best of three. And if I win best of three, he goes best of five. Best of, of course. And if I win, he goes best of seven. And it's that it's you know those tiny tiny things that you, you and I, a civilian, will go. You don't need to do that. But uh, an elite athlete will go. Oh, you're not beating me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was it's tiny things where if you look at Rashford interviews and you talk to him for a while and he will explain things and he explains his formulation for things that you got. Sometimes he has rendered me speechless or I've had to nervously laugh because I go, that, that's simply <laughs> incredulous. You would not, you can't do that. Uh, and he's like, well, yeah, that's how I think. Uh, and you go, right. Okay. That, that's the sort of player who has, who works his back muscles. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and I think the big thing with Marcus was making sure he was fit. You know, early 2020, he, he, he was in, he had a fractured back. And he found it difficult to sit down. He had a bit of piece of floating bone in his foot. Uh, and then his ankle, you know, in 2021, when Manchester United reached the Europa League final, he, his shoulder kept popping out. He was in so much pain there. Um, and, you know, his ankle was so swollen, he couldn't wear hard shoes. Hmm. Um, and he's not, he doesn't have these issues right now. And I think part of it, you know, he's fully fit. He's also got that sort of, what basketball will say, the man body, in that now he can just fend off a fullback that way. So that helps as well. And he's also got now a manager who, not only is working on his strengths, but is also working on his weaknesses. And he's also working on certain structures and saying, look, you're really good in these areas of the field, but if I can get you even closer, you'll be even better. And also these four or five things that you're perhaps not so good at or things that you need to be weaned off, you're also not seeing as much. I think one thing you could... Yeah, what was one thing that would perhaps rankle supporters when something that Marcus Rasher would do that he's not doing anymore. So he has a tendency of the, the knuckleball shot. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of, you know, as made famous by Cristiano Ronaldo. Sure. Uh, so he has a, he had a tendency of, he does that every now and again, where he wants to visibly take the game by a scruff of the neck. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's been two or three times where he played against uh, certain teams that you, you felt, he, he had a either good record against or like he very much went to score where even before he received the ball, there were certain situations where he just went, I'm going to get this ball. I'm going to cut inside. I want to hit this thing as hard as possible. Yeah. yeah. And when it goes in, it looks amazing. And there've <laughs> been two or three times in, in previous seasons where he did it. And you're going, that's one of the best goals I've ever seen in my life. Um, but it, it's very much a thing that he does where he is, visibly trying to make an effort or like try and change the pace of a game. Saudi yeah. Mane is similar. You can, you can normally see it in Saudi Mane where he goes, I'm taking over today. Mm-hmm. Um, and last season, there were two or three instances where he attempted to take over and he attempted that shot and you're going, oh, that is the, that is a poor shot selection. Right. Uh, if you were just not taking that shot and looked up and looked left or right, perhaps you would see a pass. Um, and there was one instance in particular in a Champions League game where he had an instance where he, he tried to dribble, he lost the ball, he sort of looked down, uh, and you could you could almost see the formulation in his head. Of just <laughs> the next thing I'm the next thing I'm going to do is, is do this shot. Yeah, and I'm and murdered the ball it. right now. 
and he did it and it was and and, and some teammates are going oh no um and i think what's interesting is he's not done that this season okay that that sort of pathway of i'm going to murder the ball sure. doesn't happen because one he doesn't need to Manchester United are no longer in a position where he has to take over in, in the way he uses to. He he needed to, and two. I mean, he's got so many other options to take over games yeah, now. Yeah, it, yeah, it's that confidence of to to know that. Well, I don't need to to. I haven't missed my window because the window will reopen, and also the fact that now you know he's got three or four extra tools that he can open the window almost at will. I think I saw him score a goal last week against Nottingham Forest, and. It looked like a man dribbling around children. It was yeah. remarkable. Sometimes it, that's what I'm saying. Like I, he has the platform, he has the skill set. His mentality is is there. Uh, you mentioned the competitiveness, even in like a trivial game of <laughs> paper rock scissors. So, but I will give credit to Ten Hag. I, I think that is what you mentioned in him not taking low percentage shots as often or not perhaps wasting a chance by doing that. I think that comes down to coaching as well. Yes, the player has to recognize the situation. They have to recognize that, you know, this is not what I should be doing. But players want glory. You know, players mm-hmm. seek it. They they crave it. And I don't blame them for taking chances like that. But clearly, Ten Hag has, you know, we talked about the stamp. You know, that that to me is, is an idea of putting a stamp on a player, player that he knows has to be great for him. Uh, and, and he's just evolving before our eyes. So great segue to talk about Carl uh, uh, Anka as the award-winning author. He has co-written two books uh, with Marcus Rashford, the first one called You Are a Champion, and the second, You Can Do It. Uh, so my first question to you about that is, well, no. Yes, okay, I'm going to ask my first question, which is the one that I'm really interested in, is like, who is the target audience for these for these books, first of all? And then follow up with, how that came to be, how you came to write two books with Marcus Rashford. So the target audience is, is, is children aged between 11 to 16. Okay. So that was the intended audience. Uh, I have since been seen and been humbled and honored to, to see children as young as six uh, and adults as old as 66 um, <laughs> pick up the book and, and give it a read. Um, and yeah, it, it's been remarkable um, watching so many children read this book, uh, I've, I've I've got comments from more than one school teacher saying they've picked up multiple copies for their class before they move on to, to junior high or move on to the next school year. Um, there's been and why is that? Why is it? There's like, been two or three the- comments from parents who've said, you know, my child doesn't really like reading, but I bought them this book, uh, and you know they've sent a photograph, and their child is just sort of their head's buried in the book. Um, I, I had one report from a, a school saying they had to order extra copies for their school library because every time it's just it's just never available. There's always someone who wants to borrow it, um, which I thought was was amazing as well. Um, the origin of the book came about through um, Marcus Rashford when he was 17, so just on the cusp of joining the United's you know, first team. It looked like mm-hmm. you, you could you could be a first team player. He was talking to one of the coaches and the psychologists at, at United's academy, uh, and they said, you know. We think you've got it below the shoulders. Um, we may, you know, I think this book would be quite useful for you to get you know, above it. Uh, and it was a copy of Tim Grover's book, Relentless. So Tim okay. Grover, former personal trainer to Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne mm-hmm. Wade. Um, and it's about resilient thinking. Um, it's got this uh, concept about called uh, closers, cleaners, uh, and coolers. Uh, okay. So, you know, the, the adage of, you know, some people talk, some people do, some people mm. do everything. Yep. Um, and Marcus read this at 17 and he reads this 
pretty much every single year. You know, he reads it with a pencil, bookmark, uh, and bits he finds really interesting, just circles and goes, that's really good. I'll try and apply this in my thinking or try and apply this in, in certain things. Um, and he said that book was really clarifying for him at a pivotal moment of his childhood. One, one time where Marcus rendered me incredulous and laughter was he said yeah it was the first real book i read outside school and i was 17 and i went oh wow if i read this <laughs> earlier i'd be so much further along in life sure and I went, this is you know, marcus was 20 23 turning 24 at the time i went you i mean you're doing pretty well yeah <laughs> your age right now um <laughs> and he, he thought he, he he loves books um he's he often says he he, he really wishes he could read more books and he said it'd be really useful to create a version of relentless for children okay and so if this book helped me uh 17 could there be a version that could help someone you know 10 year old me sure um and you know for tim grover's book is fantastic but the man who helped michael jordan be michael jordan um perhaps sometimes uh, yeah <laughs> and you're talking about michael jordan kobe like i have kobe's book the mama mentality and it's like i read it because i think those are the one percent of, of athletes it's like it's you're not getting to that point you know a regular human being may not ever connect with the michael jordan and and, and kobe Bryant mentality but there are there's so much to extract from mm -hmm. from them uh, it, it was that the point and, and what, what do six to 10, 11, 12, 66 year olds taken away from these books that you've written with Marcus? So that was, so that was, that, I think that was the genesis of the idea. And, and I was, you know, that was sort of like an open casting for, for people who, who want to say, Marcus picked me. Okay. Um, and I, I still to this day have no idea what I said or what I did <laughs> to, to make him pick me. I, I will probably never ask him because I'm, yeah, you don't generous. need to know that. You don't need to know yeah. that. Uh, and it, so the process was, uh, so You Are a Champion was the idea that, you know, we think of champion in, in the I've won, you know, WWE champion, WBC, IB, you know, IBC champion, but but also the way that you can champion someone else. You can be a champion for a cause. Sure. Um, and, and also you can be a champion for an area. You know, you, you can you can wrap your hood, champion your your, your thing. So there's more than one way of being a champion, and there's and there's the book was very much a, uh, about helping young people recognize the champion within themselves, recognizing the fact that they have the potential to do anything. Um, I think you look at Marcus's history, where he grew up. Um, he 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 said, you know, the place he grew up in Withenshaw, he born in Withington, grew up in Withenshaw in Manchester, and he said, you know, those are two areas that weren't often in the news unless something bad happened. Okay, uh, and people who grow up there, you know, your your access to great things is not great, right? There, there's he he once told me a story, um, for the second book you can do it, where he would play football sunrise till sunset, come home, uh, and maybe his mum wasn't in because his mum was working second job, uh, and there was a corner shop not too far from where he lived, so he'd you know, go into the corner shop, uh, and he'd get a drink or he'd get like a pasty. Um, a patty or a sandwich or whatever uh, and you know, he's sweating or whatever and, he, and the shop owner was like don't worry about it I sorted out with your mum already he's like oh okay hmm. go home and do that and this went on for 10, 10 7 years uh, and years later uh, you know, saw the owner a couple of years ago and said oh man and went to his mum I'm so glad you two had a chat and his mum went what chat <laughs> uh, and he said well he goes what do you mean what chat he goes well I've been eating for free from him for ages and he's like wow 
and, and that sort of like real tight knit yeah. community. Yeah, yeah, looking yeah. He saw something. He saw something. Yeah. Marcus, yeah. And there's been two or three, you know, Marcus has a, a his entire lifetime has two or three moments where people see something in him and say, you can do it. You can yeah. go off and do stuff like that. And look, if you are a Premier League football player, you probably have a lot of people come up to you and say, I want to be a Premier League football player. Of course. Um, and, and, you're one of the point zero 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 one percent to make it in the Premier League. And I think something that's really good from Marcus is one, being able to to tell people, yeah, no one should tell you you're not going to be a Premier League football player. But, but also balancing that with with the great idea of why do you want to be a football player? Because I like football. Like, oh well you can play football all the time for the rest of your life. It, like, the only difference between the football Marcus plays and the football I play on a Thursday is I mean, the football we plays on a Thursday is a Europa League theme and, and floodlights or whatever. And my one is five aside, <laughs> whatever. But the idea is, hey, you but, do the things. Yeah. You do the things because you enjoy them. Yeah, uh, you do the things that because you enjoy them, and you do the things that you're good at. And and if you can do those things, then, then you should be happy. And that is a concept in those books that uh, is in there a lot. There's a lot of talk about um, dealing with adversity. There's a lot of talk about um, friendship, uh, the importance of family. There's a great story in there about his grandmother who used to make him porridge quite often. Uh, and then sooner or later, you know, she, his grandma used to make corn porridge every single morning and he'd love it. And he'd always be, can I have it now? Can I have it now? Can I, corn porridge takes like an hour to cook. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, can I have it now? Can I have it now? And his grandma once went, look, you are, you'll be, she said, you'll be much more successful if you ask the same question to 10 different people than if you ask the same person the same question 10 times. <laughs> oh, I need to tell my 10 year old that. And, that completely changed his way of thinking. So, you know, yeah. his grandma's house had a connection to a computer and he'd often use it to go on YouTube and watch highlights of Cristiano Ronaldo or Wayne Rooney. Um, and then he sort of has this his grandma's words in his head going, maybe there are other football players I can look up on YouTube. And it sort of changed his way of just taking in more and more information. And sure. it's, it's stories like that. So every chapter in Euro Champion starts with the story of his personal life and then goes on to learning outcomes and structure for that children could take home. Um, on more than one occasion, uh, I have uh, flicked through a copy of Euro Champion after a uh, loss at five aside and gone up. <laughs> I feel I feel better now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what a, what an awesome story, man. Um, I, I just think it's it, it says a lot about like who you are, Carl. Like I, I knew I had to get you on the podcast because you're you're like you're so you're so much more than just Manchester United's correspondent for the athletic, which I think is just an incredible assignment to begin with. You know, it's like it's the, one of the biggest job. clubs. It's like <laughs> incredible. And beyond that, you know, an award-winning author as well. And just a great storyteller, a great follow on Twitter. Also follow Carl <laughs> on, on Twitter. It's not just football, some good stuff there. Um, so, so yeah, listen, I knew you deliver. You scored an absolute <laughs> golasso for me on Copa. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Like it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for, for like all your collaborative work over the World Cup as well. You really yeah. were amazing to talk to on Thank the you. Radar Live show as well. That was fun. Those were fun yeah. shows. Yeah. You were great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, see, this is why I had Carl on. This is why I had to, to boost my own confidence. Thank you, Carl. 